you know, we love seeing biophilic design in the news. It's like blown up. Like nature is having a moment right now. Um, and I think just getting out into it, even for yeah. a 10 minute walk mm-hmm. changes your perspective. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Internet of Nature podcast, where we explore the emerging technologies for building greener, healthier, and smarter communities. I'm your host, Nadine Khala, and this week, I'm thrilled to introduce you to not one, but two guests, Monica Olson and Jennifer Walsh. Together, they're the creators of the Biophilic Solutions podcast. They come at Biophilic Solutions from two different angles. Monica is the Chief Marketing Officer and resident of Serenby, the leading biophilic wellness community that was established some 15 years ago and now has a population of 650 people. Serenby is kind of like a suburban utopia where people live in harmony with nature and vice versa. Everything has been intentional in its biophilic design. Jennifer created Beauty Bar in 1998 Beauty Bar was the very first multi-channel beauty brand, which changed the way that people shop for beauty products. Beauty Bar allowed shoppers to see and try out these independent beauty products in person, on website, and on her weekly TV show. And the retail concept also became the very first in America to incorporate biophilic design. It was an experimental connection between nature and the beauty space. After selling her business, Jennifer is now on a mission to get more people outside and explore the power of connecting to nature and the impact and importance of green spaces, not only in our offices, but also in our homes, hospitals, schools, and cities as a whole. Together, Monica and Jennifer are bringing stories of biophilic design from all over the world to their listeners via their podcast. So it was a thrill to have them on mine. Enjoy this episode with Monica and Jennifer. Monica and Jennifer, welcome to the Internet of Nature podcast. Hi. Hey, how are you? Thanks for coming on. Before we kick off, um, perhaps very good to just do a little bit of an introduction into who I have with me here today, uh, two fabulous guests, founders of the Biophilic Solutions. So Monica, how about you kick off the intros? Sure. Thanks so much for having us. So Jennifer and I started this podcast about a year ago by Philip Solutions, and it came out of an idea that um, we really wanted to help expand what is biophilia and bring people into sort of um, an all-inclusive movement without Mm -hmm. sort of building a community, really saying like, we're all part of biophilia. And so how can we educate people about it and give them an on-ramp to start learning about why it's important to connect with nature and how important um, biophilic solutions are. Hmm. And Jennifer, you want to add anything, Jen? Yeah, I think, um, I think what Monica just says spot on is the fact that we want it to be inclusive to everybody because nature is inclusive. So I think it, it, it brought so many different industries as well. It's like biophilia is our love of all living things, and we're all part of that ecosystem. So how do we take that from something so grand and make it so personal to each and every one of us that it touches each of our lives in such simple ways that we might not have thought about? So these conversations that we get to have, 
uh, are really meaningful, I think, not to, not just to our listeners, but to Monica and myself as well, and our producer, Katrina, that we're always just so in awe of the people that we get to do, talk to. That's really, really fun for, for all of us. Right. I, it, maybe we're a little selfish because I think we're, you know, naturally curious, as I know you are. And so, you know, we just want to learn and we want to understand. Mm-hmm. And then if we can sort of make it a casual, accessible conversation, then then we've succeeded. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast in the middle of the pandemic, especially because I just felt like a lot of these networking opportunities obviously weren't possible. And this provides podcasting is just such a fun medium to have longer, more nuanced conversations about a lot of these Mm -hmm. issues. Definitely. I totally agree. I know, Monica, I missed each other because I live in New York City. And Monica is in Atlanta. And Monica was actually my producer for a series I created called Walk with Walsh. And I filmed mm-hmm. this whole series in Serenby where Monica lives. So here I was so disconnected from being able to shoot the video series of Monica living in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, or outside of Atlanta in Serenby. So it was a great way to have the conversations continue, but just in a different format during the pandemic. So it's been delightful, just like you're doing as well, as just having these meaningful conversations with curiosity in mind. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's the best. It's the best. And that you get to call that part of your job is a dream come true. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so uh, Jennifer touched on it a little bit as well. But so Jennifer's in Manhattan in New York City and Monica's in a special place called Serenby. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about where you both live um, and how that impacts your your mission towards biophilia. Monica, you want to start? Sure, sure. So um, I grew up in California and so had always been pretty outdoors, just L.A., San Francisco, more in San Francisco. And so when we got to Georgia, Atlanta, we didn't quite know where our place was. We couldn't quite figure it out. Um, And we stumbled upon this community called Serenby, which is just south of the airport here, Um, not really knowing much about it, had like kind of a glorious day and um, were in the market for a new home and sort of walked away with a house, if you will. And it really changed our lives. And so when we found Serenby, um, after sort of a magical day with our young kids at the time, um, we just thought it was a beautiful place. But what we didn't realize was the intention that had been set by the founder, Steve Nygren, that it really was a place that he found with his family to reconnect with the family, reconnect with people and reconnect with nature. And when he felt like suburban sprawl was coming his way, which we see in markets all across the country, it had really always gone north in Atlanta, but he was worried it was coming south. He sort of snapped into action um, and concepted this idea, like, what if I can preserve the land around me while also building a development. And so there's a ton of different components that go into it, but it really starts with conservation of land and nature and really building with nature rather than against it. So he really has been modeling and driving um, the vision of how do we build neighborhoods in the greenfield, you know, which would we would call maybe the suburbs in a more thoughtful way. And so there's a ton Mm. of sustainability details from Earthcraft certification, which is sort of like a lead for the home to everything's geothermal, solar panels, EV chargers, but it all starts with protecting the land. Um, As well as I should say, it's a mixed use community, which is another thing that we really haven't done. Um, Once the car came into place so many years ago, we stopped doing mixed use places. Um, And a lot of them are even illegal with zoning is forcing you to only build single family housing. And Mm. I could 
could go down a whole wonky road <laughs> on that, but it has been a real education for myself. And that has sort of kickstarted my own personal journey um, to really understand um, how we can build, you know, with more nature-based solutions. And that's, you know, sort of how this fits into my world. As well as I should, in full disclosure, say that I run marketing for Serenby, so it's not as if I'm just a resident that can speak articulately. (laughs) She's honed her craft. She's really good at it. (laughs) We educate our residents really well. Exactly. Um, No, but Monica, I can completely relate to that because that's where a lot of, growing up in a Canadian suburb myself, that's where a lot of these questions started for me too. Just just seeing this, um, you know, my my parents' house, which is still their house today, was very much on the outskirts of the city. You know, my, we were surrounded by cornfields and forests and slowly you would just see those things be taken over by subdivision after subdivision. And I think that's what really kind of from an early age just started the, the questions, right? It's like, mm-hmm. why, why does it have to be in that way? And why can't it be in another way? And I think that's ultimately, although it's easy to say in retrospect, but I think that's ultimately kind of what led, led me down the career path I have for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Jennifer in the middle of Manhattan in New York, that mm-hmm. is not the most nature rich environment. So how did, how does that fit into your overall mission of biophilia? It is so not nature rich at all. So, um, it's been an interesting journey because it really started 25 years ago when I started my first company, which was Beauty Bar, which is a beauty brand. And that uh, the stores were very biophilic in design, which I didn't have a term mm. for it back then, 25 years ago. But it wasn't really until around six or seven years ago that I've always walked in nature and I've always been in Central Park, which is thankfully my backyard pretty much in New York City. And I'm maybe took it for granted for a while that it was there and I would just walk my dog or I'd just go for a walk or I'd just go for a run. But six or seven years ago, I really slowed down my running to just walk more and be more present. And I stopped talking on my phone and I would just kind of witness the nature around me and recognize the nature that was around me was actually even in the ingredients that I was using in some of my beauty products, thinking like, oh, there's gink- there's ginkgo trees in New York City. And I didn't, I didn't recognize or I didn't see with real eyes um, the beauty of the natural surroundings that were around me. Uh, and then I started the Walk with Walsh video series where I was interviewing uh, healthy leaders on what it meant to them to be a healthy leader. But each and every person I interviewed said, this felt so good, I never get outside. And I thought, right. wow, that's so fascinating. Here we are, they're busy leaders, I understand. But I realized and recognized then that people in New York City and most places in America, I feel, go from you wake up in the morning and you go to your job, you come home and you're, you're inside and that's it. And you might go to the gym, but you're not going outside for anything or you hold the outside for weekends or for a holiday. Mm-hmm. So it became this discovery of like went down the rabbit hole. It's like, okay, there has to be something to this that we know it feels good, but we're not going outside. And that was 2016 or so. And I couldn't consume enough information, all the books I was reading. And it really set off this path of self-discovery, really, and then understanding, like, how is it affecting me and, of course, the community at large, especially in New York City, and how do I take all these findings and studies and share it with uh, the people of New York, which has been challenging to get people outdoors, Mm -hmm. but I think the silver lining in the pandemic has really been this unearthing, if you will, of understanding of, like, how important it was for us to be outdoors and to be outside for, for better health. So now people are a lot more interested 
uh, in what that means to them and to their families and to their community at large and also their businesses. So if we're more in tune with the natural surroundings, how does that impact our health uh, and the health of our businesses? And it's been a really fascinating journey to get to know more like-minded people like yourself and Monica and many others who want to cultivate these pathways to better health through nature and also to protect it. Hmm. Well, that actually leads me, Jennifer, because I wanted to ask you, you shared some really powerful words on your Instagram the other day, which in honor of Earth Month, being that we're in April, I think you made a really valid point there about, you know, we've, when we talk about climate change, when we even talk about sustainability, there's a lot of doom and gloom. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of, I think, as, as you rightfully put it, a lot of the focus on doing less harm to the earth. Mm-hmm. And if we were to, and that's very much a philosophy that I subscribe to, if we could just shift that to being a lot more positive, and that's kind of the thing with biophilia and bringing more nature into our lives, it is by default something that's very positive. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that for a minute? Yes. It's funny because Monica and I always talk about the Biophilic Solutions podcast. We want to make it more about um, love and expansion and growth and not just doom and gloom. We need to, like Dr. Wallace, Mm. Nichols always talks about the fact from Blue Mind says we need to put romance back into life and to the beauty of nature. And I really deeply feel like Mm. our focus has been on the wrong thing because sustainability is, yes, we're trying to be more sustainable, but you can't feel, touch, smell, taste sustainable, but you can feel, touch, taste, smell nature. And you can't, if you can't feel something, you can't really understand it to really wrap your head around. It feels like it's something other than, but life is all Mm. about feeling. Um, so I think our focus needs to be on nature versus sustainable. And then once we put that focus more on nature, we'll want to protect it because it's in our backyard. You'll see the trees going away. You'll see the bees going away saying, I wonder, I wonder why that's happening. So I think if we put that focus more on the natural, being nature smart, being nature rich, like Monica and I always talk about this, like the more we want to protect that, which we love and understand. So we need to put that focus back on the life-giving forces of nature versus just sustainability. And, and I think that so many climate scientists, I mean, I don't, you know, maybe it's a cliche at this point, but like the movie Don't Look Up, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you both mm-hmm. have seen, is was pretty phenomenal from a satire yet, you know, very much truth. And I, I saw a tweet the other day of a climate scientist, and I, I don't remember who it was, a woman. She was like, do you realize, you know, all this doom and gloom and this fear and this horror, you're, you are putting all of these younger generations in a really bad mental space and Mm. it's very upsetting to them and it feels very hopeless and we already have a big mental health issue um in general and then COVID Mm. hit and obviously you know the geopolitical issues around the world are obviously Mm -hmm. very upsetting beyond our social cultural issues you know in the united states and i thought that that was a really interesting you know, tweet to sort of call on everybody to sort of reframe the conversation. Now, I don't mm-hmm. know if we can do that as a whole society. Um, I'm, a, I'm about to, I'm in a climate book club and we're about to read a book um, that sort of talks about, you know, why, <laughs> why nobody um, listens to, you know, climate change, why nobody's doing anything about it, you know, because I'm fascinated in the psychological aspect of mm-hmm. like, why aren't we making yeah. these big changes? Um, and so I, I think if any, if we can just bring people into the conversation, um, you know, and, and make them think and re- recognize how important it is to their every day, you know, we, we've made a small difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's all about one of the things that I talk to my students 
a lot about is what are we optimizing for? Mm. If we're optimizing for, you know, lower CO2 and lower CO2 emissions, if you really optimize that to its end, that means that, you know, humans die because everything that we do (laughs) has an impact, including every breath that we take. So if that's the path that you want to go on, then I think that's a pretty disastrous one. And I think it's a pretty catastrophic one that's not going to lead to to really anything positive. I think we're optimizing for the wrong things Mm -hmm. versus when you optimize for nature rich environments and nature rich communities. It's about finding that better balance for both nature and humans Mm -hmm. and being able to live in much better harmony with one another. And it's, it's always focused on the positive because you can start small and it immediately has a positive incremental impact versus when you do something to lower your carbon footprint whether that's eating less, you know, industrially farmed products, for example, or or whether that's flying less or whether that there's always a negative connotation Mm. associated with it. I truly believe that innovation and sometimes technologically supported innovation is going to help us get out of, you know, just think about we've been able to accomplish in the last 10 years, even on those fronts. And we need motivated to your point, Monica, we need motivated, smart, um, mentally well people to help us innovate Mm -hmm. out of these issues Mm -hmm. and just piling on the doom and gloom and the anxiety and depression. I mean, it's not, that is not the way out of this. Mm -hmm. Because we know if we're not in a, in a place mm-hmm. to mentally or physically, if we're, if we haven't been taken care of, we can't take care of anybody else, let alone the planet. So there is something about, you know, trying to figure out you know, you could make a case that, you know, really working on, you know, mental illness or highlighting mindful practices or, you know, like Jennifer does, you know, really mindful walks. You know, we love seeing biophilic design in the news. It's like blown up, like nature is having a moment right now. Um, And I think just getting out into it, even for a 10 minute walk Mm -hmm. changes your perspective and can reset people's brainwaves and heartbeat and everything. So, yeah, I love that you said that, Monica, because I think we're all practitioners. The three of us are practitioners in what we speak about. And I think that's such an important part of like, we're not just shoving information out there. We're real practitioners in what we talk about. We walk the walk and talk the talk because we believe so deeply <laughs> in it. Right. It's like, we, we know because we also study it and we research, but we're also there trying to teach and educate others at these simple little acts of walking or, you know, how you treat your, um, your trees and your cities really, once Mm. you get to know them, you're like, Oh yeah. Okay. Now I know. And I understand, um, why it's impactful for our health and not doom and gloom. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that knowing is an important part as well, because there's some fantastic research that's been coming out already over the last 15 years and more so recently that shows really how, when you better understand your natural environments and what grows and what flourishes around you, the more empathy, the more you are able to relate to that and the more empathy you feel for it, the more likely you are to protect it. Mm. So it all begins with that understanding. And that's where I write a lot about the role that technology can play in that. Cause I think, Mm -hmm. and that's something that I want to address with you guys as well is when we talk about getting out in nature and we talk about living a more you know biophilic existence technology is often seen as the enemy to that as an opposing force to that and increased screen time um you know they always say you know nature there's no app for this you know um (laughs) but you know 
what if there was, you know, there's a, there's a lot of really interesting technologies that are coming out, whether it's the city nature challenge that is put on by the iNaturalist community every Mm -hmm. single year for four days at the end of April, it's coming up where essentially citizens are encouraged to go out and document as much wildlife in their cities as possible using the smartphone app. Um, whether that's, um, using something like a, uh, a soil sensor that's going to give you an evidence-based timing in terms of when, uh, and how much you should water that tree, for example. Um, there's all these different new technologies that are coming up that, yes, we don't want this. You don't want to be reliant on your screens when you're outdoors. But I think especially for the demographic that we're trying to reach, which is the people that never go outside and that haven't yet you know, fully grasped those benefits, technology can be an interesting um, facilitator for those first interactions. Yes. I always go for a walk. I'm walking every day and I also run every day. I try and run every day, but I love that fact that there's now on the new upgraded iPhone, um, you have the opportunity to see what the new plant is or like, I'll take pictures of a plant. I'm like, I'm not sure what plant species that is. And now Mm -hmm. there's that information button. You can kind of say what, what, what plant it is. You get all the information about what kind it is, when does it grow, you know, the species. And I think that's fascinating as a way to unearth discovery through, through, um, you know, through the internet and through our ability to, to learn while we're walking or talking. And um, that self-discovery is pretty cool using yeah, the technology. And, I think, and mm. I think using it as a tool rather mm-hmm. than a crutch, you yes. know, how do we, not that a crutch isn't a tool, but how, how do we, um, I mean, we're already using Strava, right. To track our runs and our bike rides. Like, you know, I have an aura ring that, you know, tracks my sleep and my, you know, time outside or, you know, when I'm uh, my steps and stuff. So we're already using technology. So how do we use it to be smarter? Like I just read an article about, you know, all of these billionaires going up in rockets and how, you know, we were lionizing these exciting trips to whatever the edge of space and these billionaires are going, but, you know, nobody's really talking about the environmental impact of it. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, I read an article that sort of like touched on the environmental impact, but really promoted how satellites are, you know, helping climate change because they can map the deforestation or they can map where fires are. And, and of course, you know, satellites are incredible. I mean, that's probably how we're having this conversation right now, all in different places. But, you know, I do think that we have to be careful about thinking about what's the pro and con of a new technology, mm-hmm. you know, even if you will going to space for fun, mm-hmm. you know, it's starting and I feel like it, the horse is out of the barn and <laughs> I don't know if we can pull it back. And, mm-hmm. you know, those emissions that are going up every time, you know, is a percentage of that going for carbon offsets? The people who are paying $55 million to go up is a percentage going to the mm-hmm. planet is a percentage going to the government. Like, I just have a lot of questions in that area. And so, you know, I feel like sometimes we get gaslit on some technologies. Mm -hmm. The one that I'm fascinated about, and this is really how we, we, we met you was the nature dose, um, app. And, and, and that's fascinating to me. And I've been, I walk outside all the time and I have a, a ton of women that I walk with and I've been sort of evangelizing that app. And this app sort of basically tracks your time outside and, you know, how do we think about, you know, just if we do 10,000, we need 10,000 steps a day, how much time in nature do we need a day? And I think we're going to hear more and more about that. 
And so whether that's prescribed by a physician, which seems wild Mm -hmm. that we would have to Mm -hmm. prescribe nature, but just like people are prescribing vegetables right now, you know, we've, we've gotten away from all of these common sense ways to live that we used to live a hundred years ago, growing our own food and, you know, observing organic practices. Mm -hmm. And so if an app can help me sort of nudge me, you know, outside and and get past that 95% of my time inside, which is really abysmal. Mm -hmm. Yes. But, but I'm the same way. Like my initial reaction is like, Oh, you know, technology, the app is the enemy. Get off your screens. But again, using them wisely as a tool. I think nature, nature quant is the anti app, right? It's the app. That's the anti app because now I check it like maybe once a day to see how much nature I'm getting, especially that I'm in like Mm-hmm. I'm in the like least dense nature <laughs> depleted area, but it's interesting to find out like yeah. how much nature I am getting, even though I'm like really trying to get outside every day. So how much, it, and it's always interesting because there's always great um, research associated with the app as well, which I love. Yeah. And I, I think that's, again, it's the question of what are you optimizing for? And mm-hmm. I think nature quant with the nature dose app has made a very, um, a very core decision that is, is very much aligned deeply with their mission, which is to create an app, which is at its core, ensuring that people get outside mm-hmm. and not getting distracted by yet another app. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the, the, the main um, kind of models moving forward is having that app be integrated into something like Apple Health or into a health insurer app or into a corporate wellness app, something like uh, Thrive Global, which has been Ariana Huffington's mission and company to try and combat combat burnout through a number of different activities and meditations and things you can do through the app. Um, I know Nature Quan has a, a partnership with a company called Kasana Health, which is developing these really state-of-the-art health uh, apps to help essentially um, s- severe mental health cases. So offering nature dose, so the time that you've been inside, time you've been outside, and the time you've been exposed to nature as essentially a predictor Mm -hmm. of someone's suicide risk, which is, which is pretty, uh, game changing stuff, being able to, in the most severe mental health cases, move therapy into the day to day and the minute to minute rather Mm -hmm. than just the hour on the, on the couch every single week. So I think those, I think you hit the nail on the head, Monica, when you said that it is always and should always remain a tool. And this is not the be all and end all. The be all and end all should always remain nature rich communities, which are great for the planet and for the people. And I think when we optimize for human health, Mm. you optimize for planetary health. Mm -hmm. And that I think is really going to be the solution. Because when you optimize, when you make decisions with that mindset, you can't go wrong, I Mm -hmm. think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well said. Hey, it's me, Nadina. Just popping in here to encourage you to take me outside. Listen to the podcast as you stroll through your local park. Take a bike ride along the river or ski down a mountain, whatever suits you. I know it's what the sponsor of today's episode would want. This podcast is brought to you by the Nature Conservancy's global coalition, Nature for Climate. The discussion around climate change can be overwhelming and honestly, downright daunting. The Nature for Climate Coalition focuses on what we can do rather than what's been lost. Its partners, including the Nature Conservancy, 
work together to get natural climate solutions, such as avoiding deforestation in the tropics and restoring wetlands and sustainably managing forests, implemented across the public and private sectors. Restoring nature is one of our best chances for mitigating climate change and also creating happy, healthy, and green communities for future generations. And that's exactly what we like to hear here at the Internet of Nature podcast. Find out how at natureforclimate.org. Okay, now get yourself outside and back to the show. When um, I should have done this about, you know, 25 minutes ago, but um, I would love to kind of get your, uh, your definition of what biophilia means to you. What have you both learned in recent years about this concept? Because I think, you know, most, some of the listeners of this podcast might recognize biophilia as the term that E.O. Wilson, the great ecologist that sadly just passed away, um, at a, a very old age. I mean, he was, he left an absolute legacy. They called him the modern day Darwin. Uh, he was really, uh, he didn't coin the term, but he definitely popularized the term. So what does biophilia mean to you and what have you learned about it from recent years? Go ahead, Monica. Do you want to go first, <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll go. So, you know, I had never heard of it until Sarah B. And um, uh, our Steve Nagarin, again, the, the founder and the managing director of Sarah B., you know, um, had we we have a um, like a fellowship program at Serenby where we bring in visiting artists and thinkers and we had this amazing guy come in, Mark Mickleby, also known as Puck, who had done he was like big in worked with the Pentagon and did a lot of work on sustainability and thinking about the threats to um, you know America and his conclusion was really um, that was presented to Congress and has now I think been declassified was basically we are our biggest threat. The mm. threat is not outside. The threat mm. is inside. How do we combat that threat? And, you know, the, the threat is food security. It's security with energy and resiliency. Um, and, you know, just sort of a lot of the planetary um, issues that we're, we're dealing with. And really the threat comes from inside as well as education was another one. And so he encouraged Steve Nygren to create an institute that became known as the Biophilic Institute. And when I first heard the name, I just thought that is the worst word I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, I don't know how to spell it. I barely know how to say it. I don't from know a, from it a marketing perspective, Monica yeah, was yeah, not, yeah. Happy. <laughs> not happy. So and true. Steve, and he's like, well, I think we want to call it the Biophilic Institute. I'm like, uh. all right. <laughs> you know, um, and so, <laughs> it's a bit of a funny turn that we have a, you know, we've taken on the word for our podcast. And so, but once he explained it to me that, you know, it really is um, all of us individuals, people um, and animals have a love of nature and we have like an innate connection to it, um, to all living things. And that connection is sort of a life force mm -hmm. and the less we're connected to it, you know, the more we have problems, which we've talked a little bit so far. And so that concept of biophilia and the biophilic hypothesis, and now today, probably in the biophilic sort of umbrella, biophilic design is probably what the consumer hears the most mm -hmm. of really bringing nature into a building, into the built environment in some form for you typically, you know, for better health of the, um, occupants. And, you know, over time, you know, I, I became a champion of it and, and it's interesting. I, I feel like really 
COVID and it, you know, brought nature to the forefront, like nature's having a day. Um, but I do feel this year, all of the people that we've worked with, like some brilliantly smart PR teams and writers and strategists who all just thought you couldn't put it in a book title. You couldn't put it in a, like mm. nobody understands it have all come around or they're starting to come around. And that is really exciting. Mm-hmm. So I'm not right. sure if that answered your question, but, but you know, it, it, it really took living here and, and being educated um, and now being exposed to some of the top biophilic leaders um, through the Institute and our, and the podcast we've been able to engage with people has just been a joy. Um, and, and it feels very inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it, it isn't, I feel green and sustainable and, and climate and all these words have become divisive um, and politicized mm-hmm. and you're either on one side or the other. And that just doesn't make sense mm-hmm. because nature is on all of our sides. And so I, I and you know, this is going to maybe sound Pollyannish, but, you know, I think that by building a biophilic movement and, and welcoming everybody in, it's a way to bring people together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. No, actually, Monica, that's a fantastic point because it just, I feel that's why I love to focus so much on nature, naturist communities, landscape restoration, uh, you know, rewilding degraded landscapes, Mm -hmm. both within cities or outside of them. It is something that touches everybody. It is a completely Mm -hmm. bipartisan sector in the sense that truly, no matter how you vote or, 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 or who you believe in or, or whatever walk of life you're from, a nature touches everyone. And it is, is truly a joy to work at something um, like that, especially now where I feel like we've just, after the pandemic, the world has sadly become even more polarized than it was even six years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, that's something that I think is, is really the power of having these discussions is it's, it's not about reducing CO2. It's not about uh, scolding people. Um, it's not about making them feel bad. It's not about kind of this virtue signaling of look at me with my electric car and my solar panels and my, uh, and my house because I can afford it. And it's something that I can only afford and shame on you mm-hmm. for not doing more. Um, that is it. That is it. Again, just from a purely from a marketing standpoint, that yeah. is it. That is a terrible strategy. But Jennifer, I feel like that's something you're really doing in your in your daily practice as well. Not only walking the walk, um, but also really encouraging encouraging everybody to get outside. And I mean, if you can do that in New York, you could do yeah. it anywhere. I tried. I was like, as you say, like almost like micro dosing of nature because I think right. what you can't unlearn. So I try and teach almost things that seem common sense. Um, but when people realize it's it's actually good for you. So this connection to biophilia, I mean, I didn't really know about it until I started reading in 2016, 2017. But I didn't really see it in terms of like a, a space or place until I went to Serenby in 2019. And when I got introduced to Steve, I got to visit uh, for the first time and do an interview with Steve through uh, Serenby. It was the most profound experience I've had because I witnessed what a biophilic community could look like and how people lived there very intentionally. And I remember mm. talking to Steve and saying, I've never seen something so intentionally planned so beautifully. He's like, no, Jennifer, this is just common sense. <laughs> I said, oh, you're right. Mm-hmm. So it kind of he opened my mm-hmm. eyes to this discovery of, um, again, it's all about education. So how do we take what we're all learning and make it simple for everyone to know that it doesn't have to be big, but teaching. I have a girlfriend of mine who left Brooklyn. I'll give an example. 
picked up her life with her husband and two young, young children under the age of five during the pandemic and moved out east to Long Island, Mm. very far away on a smaller, even smaller island. And I love to watch her teach her children how to plant um, flowers and watch them. Like every day she takes them to the garden to watch them grow. And so it's a discovery that she's allowing her children to witness the discovery of life. Uh, And the beauty of that simpleness will last a lifetime for those children to really understand what that looks like and to teach people Mm -hmm. how you're like growing your vegetables and seeing friends of mine leaving the city and um, having their own gardens now they're having uh, their own chickens and they're growing their fruits and vegetables and it's this um, again it's this connection to we are all interconnected so biophilia Mm -hmm. is really that connection to all living things I think is so profoundly beautiful in its simpleness but we've also put up these walls of if it's too simple, it's not real or it doesn't make sense or it should cost money. And I think in the long run, we've gotten so far away from what's intentionally and um, it, intrinsically connected to who we are. It's it's life um, and our yeah. connection to it. So I think we have to re-emerge as uh, an understanding that we are all connected to all living things. And how do we become a healthier uh, people and planet for that? Right. Again, it's about what are we optimizing for? I think yes. that's the, the, the common theme. Um, what, so uh, tell me a little bit more about what are some of the most exciting biophilic solutions that you guys have come across in the last year? Oh, there's a lot. I don't even know where to start. Really? Yeah. I, you know, I, I mean, I, I'll touch on biophilic design just because mm. it is such a popular topic right now. And so, mm. so listeners might be able to relate more to that is um, Bill Browning, who mm-hmm. is a friend in on the Biophilic Institute board and we've interviewed, has created these 15 patterns, right? And the 15 patterns can be implemented into the built environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as far as sort of trying to document um, and create a structure for biophilic design that then could be utilized by anyone really, you know, obviously they're educating and doing workshops for um, designers and corporations and everybody. But I think that that is a really great example of a biophilic solution. Um, And one thing that he has been working on and, and, um, and sort of the Institute is figuring out, you know, can we do research? And they've been doing some of it. um, Bill's, Bill's company Terrapin is, Occupancy research studies where you do pre and post when people move into these lead buildings or these fit well buildings or well buildings, you know, or a biophilic building, um, Living Futures does a whole um, living building challenge. You know, there's some wonderful certifications out there that are pushing everything to a healthier and more sustainable built environment. And so that is all great and good, but we all know that everybody wants metrics, everybody wants documentation, everybody wants to know how it hits the bottom line. Mm -hmm. So I think the work that they're doing, um, and Google's a great example. And I want to say, um, Google is coming out in a week or two with, um, a lot of information on their buildings that they have built, built by a lot of their campuses. Mm. But I think that's a great biophilic solution. How can we do pre and post research on occupants of a building, um, workers, if you will, or whether it could be, it could be um, individuals in a hospital and how by building um, biophilic or in a more well pattern, using the biophilic patterns, how have, you know, stress reduction, mindfulness has increased um, worker productivity, 
um, and just general health. You know, it could be just the yeah. air quality is better because we have been really, really thoughtful about, um, you know, making sure that all the materials on the red list aren't going into a building. Mm-hmm. So, so that's one that I feel like people and anybody can download the biophilic solutions on Terrapin's um, website. So I think that those are really interesting and that's like a whole nother podcast, you know, to go into the patterns, but, but that's one that I really like, um, yeah. is being able to give practical solutions to individuals beyond just, Oh, I'm put a plant in my house. Mm-hmm. Great step. Great step. Yeah. But yeah. you know, um, and, the 15 patterns um, can really change the built environment. You know what too, mm-hmm. Monica? Cause I think we was all, we've also had conversations about, because I'd love that we can implement all those things too. And also like the sense of discovery that like fill tab, mm. like thin places mm. that that's also like nature can be a very spiritual interaction that we might not even witness or like understand or like, wow, that, that felt good. And I wonder why this moment in nature made me feel so good. But I think it's like you said too, we have to think about it as health. So nature, if we mm. take care of nature, it is our human health connection to eating better, to having fresher air, better water, and of course the indoor environment. What are we bringing indoors that makes us healthier? Because we never thought about our indoors as healthy or not healthy. Can it make us well or unwell? And I think that the biophilic design helps us understand our spaces and places much more profoundly mm-hmm. than we've ever had before. We go to a hotel. Is that hotel going to make me well? Not just because of a spa treatment, but of what they're offering in terms of water features or wood features or maybe blankets at the door to nudge us to spend more time outdoors in their, on their, you know, grounds. Um, I think these are all like little elements that are there that we get to kind of discover really. And I I think that's, you know, despite the marketing qualms that we have about the term, I mean, I think that's the beauty of, of having that term and having that concept Mm -hmm. because it, it is something that brings like-minded people together. It's now something that's becoming a little bit more familiar to people so they can, when they're looking for their next getaway or their next vacation, they can actually type in biophilia or biophilic hotel and see what comes up and, and choose those places based on that as well, which is part of, I think, what, what makes it so um, so interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I would say another one that, that is that just thinking of top of mind is um, agriculture. You know, mm. thinking about as a marketer, thinking about these terms that we all hear and maybe we don't understand like regenerative and making sure, I think it's all of our jobs to make sure that those terms don't get co-opted and turn into greenwashing. But regenerative is really interesting from an agriculture perspective. And so that's an thinking about regenerative ag and Rodale Institute, if you guys are familiar with, which really created the organic movement and has mm-hmm. done the longest side-by-side research trials of um, conventional and organic agriculture in, um, oh, really? in Pennsylvania. Yeah, phenomenal. And so thinking about regeneration is really beyond organic. In, in organic food, you know, really thinks about the chemicals and how the food is made or how the plants are, you know, um, cultivated and made. This really thinks about um, how the people, mm-hmm. the animals and the soil are treated. So it sort of adds another level to it. And the biggest thing about the soil, I mean, we all understand why we want to treat animals and people well, right? We want to make sure the farmers have health care and can be paid well and the animals are treated appropriately. But soil, I don't think people, a lot of people think about. And one of the things that they that Rodale says is, um, you know, if you have healthy soil, you have healthy food and you have healthy people. But how many of us put that together mm-hmm. that, you know, we just think, yep. oh, I'm eating carrots and that makes me healthy. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, unfortunately, you have to think about where that carrot came from and how it was mm-hmm. managed yeah. on its way to your plate. You know, whether that driven, you know, a thousand miles. So now the vitamin content is less. 
or the soil wasn't treated well. It was denuded mm-hmm. because it was majority conventional or tillaged agriculture. So that's another thing that, you know, again, if, if, if we on this podcast or with Jennifer and I are just on the street with a friend of yours can somehow give somebody that kernel of knowledge, mm-hmm. um, you know, then they can go on and learn about that journey themselves or be more thoughtful at a farmer's market or try and, you know, consider growing their own food or, you know, not choosing conventional, choosing organic, um, or we will be seeing a lot more regenerative organic labels that are coming, um, that have been approved and coming. So that's another label we're all going to have to look for, you know, is it natural? Is it organic? Is it free range? You know, all these things that we're like, is it real? Mm -hmm. That's, you know, so, but regenerative ag is something that we should all be looking at and understanding better. um, Another phenomenal biophilic solution. I agree. Yeah, a lot more to come in that space, I think, in the mm-hmm. in the future. And it's great to kind of see industry practices catch up with that at standards and labeling so that people can make those those choices if they're able to. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to, uh, what was I going to ask? Yeah, I wanted to ask, so, um, well, both of you just now were making, I think, really important points when it comes to being able to quantify the benefits when you do spend time in nature as kind of um, not only as a marketing scheme, but also just in terms of investment and development. Because I think that's one of the things we're running into now. Uh, there's kind of this awareness around biophilia. We know kind of roughly the benefits. And there has been great research that, you know, ha- has said, okay, you know, these people that, you know, were in um, this call room in a hospital that was kind of like a traditional call room versus this one that had biophilic design, they purported, you know, higher productivity, higher, uh, less stress, all these different things. Um, but a lot of that is self-reported, which can of course be a great data point, but we lose a little bit of that objectiveness. And I think that's where the most diehard investors and developers that may not have yet, you know, established that green heart or that intrinsic, um, affinity with these kinds of concepts may really struggle to come up with because, you know, at the end of the day, it is about an ROI. And, um, that's what I think. So I, my, my question is now that we're seeing more and more of clinical trials using, for example, nature dose, which is kind of the first app to really track how long you've been outside. Mm -hmm. And now we're in the midst of 10 different clinical trials, whether that's with nurses or mental health patients or college, college kids using different biomarkers like Monica, your aura ring, uh, like smartwatches, all of these different biomarkers to actually see if there's a correlation there. Mm -hmm. Do you think that kind of research is going to be instrumental in driving this forward? Oh yeah, I definitely see it. Um, even with uh, neuroscience, there's a lot of neuro studies and neuro architecture. Yeah. So I'm actually going to University of Pennsylvania next week to meet with uh, mm. the head of neuro there to really because he's talking about our connection to biophilia indoors. So they're doing a lot of lab studies and lots of preliminary preliminary case studies on creating spaces and how that will affect uh, the person's blood, um, their neuro outputs. So I think there's going to be a lot more around this because there is such an interest in biophilia, biophilic design, but they're calling it kind of neuro, neuro architecture. But it really is encompassing what our environment is feeding us or not feeding us. I think that's the most interesting part is we're just at the beginning because I think brain health, as we know, and mental health is such a huge proponent to how do we go forward um, after the pandemic or through the pandemic and how do we get better? 
how do we become um, healthier, but more understanding of what our environment um, is doing to us and how we can implement mm-hmm. better programs um, like the smartwatch, like the aura, mm-hmm. like a nature quant to really understand, okay, what do we need more of to not optimize <laughs> humans, but to understand really the impact that nature has and how do we bring more nature into cities like New York or to LA or to higher, you know, Chicago or wherever it might be. Um, or how do we right. get the people that are in countries or like, you know, in the middle of America, they might have lots of nature on them, but they're spending again, 95, 95% of their time indoors. So how do we bring that, those, uh, informational data points to the schools and to teach kids, uh, and parents why nature matters. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that the neuroscience aspect, you know, tech that's, taking it back to technology, so Mm -hmm. much of the um, uh, data technology tools Mm -hmm. to track the brain uh, science, I like to see clearly that's not my world, but like the technology has gotten less expensive. Mm -hmm. So you can actually take it out into the field. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, um, you may know Florence Williams, who is a, a writer and author um, she wrote the nature fix and, um, has a new book out, um, on sort of mental health and how nature, um, heartbreak can help, uh, you know, real mm-hmm. heartbreak. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Fantastic she talks about how yeah. she, you know, was able to, um, you know, put on like a cap mm-hmm. right. that she could walk around in, in nature and track her brain waves. And, you know, that technology just didn't exist mm-hmm. years ago. It, it, let alone be, have it be portable and affordable that you yeah. can, you know, walk out of a, a lab with it. So I think that the research is fascinating. And, and so as technology gets better and better, you know, I mean, who knew that you would even be able to track you know, the things that we can on a smart, smart, smart watch now, or mm-hmm. even like um, some of these watches that track, um, you know, the blood sugar for diabetics, mm-hmm. like, yeah, who knew? It's incredible. so I think, you know, just to take it back to technology, um, the portability of it, that we can have our own agency and track um, some of these things um, to then optimize our sleep or our, you know, heart health or, you know, understanding, you know, a, a, a hard night out, <laughs> you know, how that affects you the next day, you know, then changes your behavior in the future. Cause, cause I think that that changing behavior is what we need. We need that coupled, we need tools that help kind of nudge us, mm-hmm. but we mm-hmm. have to have the metrics, yeah. you know, yeah. we have to have the numbers um, because unfortunately the financial markets really won't support the technology or a community like mm-hmm. Serenby if they don't have the data points. And that's just, unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's a fact of life. You know, they, they're always, they want data to support an investment mm-hmm. or support more research. And so I think it's a little bit of a nascent time right now, but we just have to keep pushing. And, you know, like I'm thrilled that like, you know, there's another company doing more clinical trials and that da- data will come out and will probably be shared with everybody and we can all use it to mm-hmm. champion yep. more access to nature. Yeah. And that, that, that's just it, right? Cause every individual can choose, you know, um, not, not everyone needs to track, you know, a, a 30% productivity increase when they went out for a 10 minute walk, that might be, you know, a little bit too much for the average person, but it's about getting that research in so that we can then go convince the investors and developers mm-hmm. and planners that are literally shaping the future of our communities and of our mm-hmm. cities. Yeah. And that is, I think, so critical to get that kind of information 
information out there that we wouldn't know unless that technological layer was there. Um, and it, it, again, it's all about using technology as a tool and almost, you know, hopefully at some point rendering some of this technology obsolete. And my, my hope would be that at some point, you know, we've gotten so many people on board and so many people have been nudged to go outside because they've seen on the app, holy crap, I've spent, you know, this week, 98% of my time indoors. What am I doing Mm -hmm. to then be like, okay, I'm going to make this a daily habit, which at some point, you know, I always relate it to, um, my mother-in-law had some pretty serious heart surgery this past summer. And she, you know, she came out of the hospital tied up to all this technology, right? She was absolutely, everything was tracking everything, which of course makes sense when you're in, when you're really dire position. Like for example, if you spend 98% of your time indoors and you're seeing the negative effects of that, it can be really, really helpful to have those metrics so to make sure that you're doing well and well and better and better. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, you are on that path to recovery and then mm-hmm. you, you you scale back as much technology as you can because nobody mm-hmm. wants to be hooked up to that much tech. You scale that back as much as you can and maybe you're left with just one sensor that gives you that nudge mm-hmm. once a week if you've forgotten it and really scaling it back because it's about that behavior change at the end of the day and about getting better and making those, you know, getting people outside at the end of the day rather than just focusing on how much tech can we put on everyone as much as possible because again what are we optimizing for we are not optimizing for you know borgs essentially (laughs) but you're (laughs) right star trek reference i love that you said that though because i think about when i envision the future and the possibility like it excites me to think about, gosh, if we had schools that were really full of nature and we had these kids outdoors versus indoors and like how they would grow into such different human beings if we're outdoor, like outdoor kids, free range kids, as Steve Nygren from Sarah B would say, um, or to think of like these cities full of nature, not having to say, OK, we have to get there. We must, we must, we must. But it's already there. So I think of the cities like 100 right. years from now, I'm really excited for the possibility of, of a really beautiful future for children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, and so on, uh, future generations of what our our landscape can look like uh, with everyone coming together in this biophilic movement. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I was just about to ask, what does the future look like? And you dove right into it, Jennifer. So that's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, it's again, it's a very, it's a very hopeful, very positive, very optimistic movement. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that I think is something that we just need to latch on and keep going because it just positivity breeds more positivity. And, um, I think nature breeds more nature and mm-hmm. yeah, it's, ex- it's a very, very exciting time to be in this space. I love that you just said that hopeful Monica and I always talk about that. I think nature is hopeful, right? So if we, if we start mm-hmm. with nature, there's always hope for growth and expansion and love, uh, and kindness mm-hmm. and empathy. So I think nature is that a great thread um, to tie us all together and that beauty, the beauty of the landscape can always teach us more than we can ever experience or understand. Mm. Absolutely. And what about the future of the Biophilic Solutions podcast? Well, we just hit our one year anniversary, which we were really excited. Congratulations. About. Thank you. Thank you. We're every other week right now. And Jennifer and I are noodling, you know, what we could do that would sort of pop in that week in between. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we're sort of playing with that. I don't know if it'll happen this summer or this fall, but to sort of up the frequency, but it might be, um, you know, a different, a different little 
tidbit on that sort of off week, if you will. But yeah, just really exciting um, people coming up. We have a UC um, University of California um, individual who really um, works on climate and climate justice um, for the UC system. We have a neuroscientist coming on this week, we, a woman, Carrie Pay, who is um, a, a, a textile designer, and she talks about biophilia in textiles and how the company she works for Interface is, um, you know, going carbon neutral or carbon negative. Mm-hmm. Trying to think of who else we have on. Um, Suchi, Suchi architect. Yeah. architect. Yeah, Incredible we're interviewing architect. her next week is out of New York. Um, yeah, but we're always looking for ideas. So, you know, if, if people have suggestions, you know, please let us know. You know, uh, we're just trying to under, you know, to discover new people doing great work in, in the industry. Brilliant. And where can they find the podcast and the both of you online? Uh, so the podcast is Biophilic Solutions. Um, there's a website, biophilicsolutions.com. It's on Apple, Spotify, all the places. <laughs> and you can go to our website, Biophilic Solutions, and, and have access to both Jennifer and I. Um, all of our information is there. And we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, and thank mm-hmm. you for having us. I'm so happy to just to see your face and to speak with you again. I know we had a I know. talk before, but it's always, you're, you're so delightful and I'm so you know impressed with the work that you do. And um, I love watching you on LinkedIn and all your social platforms because you really share that message of the beauty of nature all the time. Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you. I appreciate that. And you'll be on our upcoming podcast in, yes, in a little bit. Yes, so, that um, is in the works um, as well. That will be also something that for Excited. your, um, we'll turn the tables on yeah. you and your <laughs> listeners can look forward to seeing what we ask you. Mm-hmm. I'm very excited to that. I'm very looking forward to One last question that I'll leave you with, uh, with the both of you, is a question that I ask all of my guests who come on the show, which is, what does the Internet of Nature mean to you? I'll answer, well, I think the Internet of Nature is c- connectivity. So the internet's all about connection, but nature is all about being interconnected. So as if we use the internet to learn more about nature, I think that's fantastic. And if we use technology to learn and share, I think that's the whole thing. Like the, the technology allows us to share the science, the data, the beauty. And I think there's no going wrong with uh, the internet of nature because we're all, we're all here together and the healthier we are, the better we are. So that's what I think about the, the internet of nature. Yeah, that's a good one. I don't know if I can uh, uh, top it. Uh, I, I think it's if we can use the Internet of Nature to educate and to learn and think about how the all the good things that the Internet does for us, right? That w- That's sort of what it means to me is sort of education, learning, curiosity. That's what the Internet of Nature is. Brilliant. I think that's a great place to leave it. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you both for coming on. Yeah, delightful to be with you today. Thank you for listening to the Internet of Nature podcast. Want to learn more about the Internet of Nature? Subscribe to my biweekly newsletter at nadinahalla.com. I'm looking forward to bringing you another great guest next week. As always, remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review if you learned something new. The best way to support us is to share this episode with a friend or a colleague. Wishing you a great week. This show is an Unbound Media production.